Hello and welcome to Wonderful. I'm David Pearl, the founder of Street Wisdom, and this is a podcast we've designed for anyone who wants to get some inspiration on the go. Today, a lot of us are listening to podcasts while we walk. Wonderful is a podcast designed specifically for that, a podcast to walk to, something to put a bit of wonder in your wonder. You're welcome to listen to this as you wander around your home or lying on the sofa even, you'll find inspiration is actually everywhere. But if you've got a bit of time, and let's face it, we've all got a bit of time, let's boot up and head out into the street. Hey wonder lovers, lovers of the wonder, saunterers, meanderers all. Welcome, welcome to Wonderful. This is David Pearl and uh, looking forward to getting a little bit more inspiration on the go with you. Now, those of you who have heard the podcast before will know that I normally end with some thanks. But in this crazy world of ours, I'm turning it upside down. I'm going to start this episode with some thanks. A whole series of thanks for the guests that you're about to meet. The first thing I want to thank him for is... I don't know, possibly the most lovely Cornish pasty I've had in my life and certainly one of the nicest moments in 2021 so far. I was down in a place called the Lost Garden of Heligan in Cornwall with my wife and one of the rare days it wasn't pouring with rain down in Cornwall a few months ago and found myself beside a weathered ancient brick wall with niches set into it. And in those niches were straw beehives. So Victorian Edwardian beehives. And it was one of those moments, there was sort of rustling of wind in the trees, lazy buzzing of bees. And you thought, oh, this is it. This is one of those magical moments. And I want to thank our guest for rediscovering the Lost Garden of Heligan and opening it up cultivating it and turning it into treasure that people can visit. I also want to thank him for a great seminar that he and I did together years ago. Neither of us can remember what we said or who it was for, but I know it made a real impression on me and um, he inspired me then and he's inspired me since. I want to thank him for the books that he has recommended over the years. Um, And what else? Oh, well, I suppose we might as well thank him for the Eden Project as well. (laughs) Those of you who don't know, the Eden Project is the spectacular, life-affirming, much-visited, I think 20 million visitors make it sustainability's most-visited destination on the planet. And um, whilst he wouldn't claim that it was uh, his doing, he is definitely the moving force behind Eden and the many other Edens that are springing up in the world, including Australia and America and China. There's even one, I noticed one in Graniteville, USA. He is, of course, as you will have spotted and guessed, Sir Tim Smith. Now, if I'd done, I don't know, a tenth of what he'd done, I can assure you um, I'd be big-headed. But as you're about to hear, Tim Smith doesn't do ego. He just doesn't seem to, he seems to have managed to be, to do monumental things in a very humble ways. Um, he does curiosity. He does great storytelling. He does wordplay. Yes, yes to all of that. But he doesn't do ego. And in fact, as you're about to hear, 
he thinks ego may be one of the greatest threats to sustainability on our planet. Sir Tim Smith. Do you reckon if we were trying to define what type of homo sapiens we were, we'd be Neanderthal? <laughs> I love that. I love that. I'm going to, if I may, I'm going to, I, I will quote you. I quite often quote you, Tim, that you, you have this, you do have this pithy way about you. Um, you were talking last time we spoke about, about Santerre and how Saint Terre was, was the basis of sauntering. You also said something, and this is something I wanted to pick up on a recent talk uh, where you were um, playing this kind of, I don't know what it is, but in, but, but sort of loving devil's advocate on behalf of, but also seemed to me gently teasing the world of sustainability. You said that they'd recent, someone had done a study recently and, and it turns out people really don't like the word sustainability, but they really like the word nature. Was that right? Yes. Yeah, it was, it was a study done across Europe. Um, I think it is because the word sustainability, uh, the currency of it, um, which had very good origins, has been so colonized by um, so many different interest groups that people don't trust it. And whereas nature, I think maybe this is the influence of the pandemic, actually, but um, nature is perceived as having a purity to it, which is akin to, you know, c cool water and um, uh, fertile soil. Mm. Um, I think most of the experts in the field of sustainability that I know some retain the word because strangely it becomes like a flag of convenience which conveys quickly to others mm -hmm. you know, the sort of areas in which you're interested um, but most people who are professionals in that world um, are now firmly in the area of um, resilience um adaptability and all that thing i think there really is no um there is no phrase that isn't capable of them being recolonized and therefore it loses its meaning as a continuous basis but the words you want to really really not deal with are change the word change is horrible mm. and people loathe the word change it's the second least favorite word in the english language after discharge <laughs> If you step back and you look at Eden Project, projects, because they seem to be popping up all over the world, one can imagine, you know, at the heart of this, some megalomaniac, genius kind of forbidding individual. And sometimes, you know, probably you get described that way. But, but, but when you meet you, when I, in the times I've met you, you seem at ease taking, taking the world at your own speed um, and sort of endlessly curious. How do, you, how do you pull that off? How do you get so much done and still have time to talk to people like us? Well, I think the secret of stuff is to create stages where lots of people can feel that the person they dreamt they wanted to be when they were 19, you're giving people a second chance. And most people can't believe that they got that second chance to be that person. Mm. I think our, the thing we're better at than anything else and in fact, probably better at than anyone else that I know, is we make people believe in themselves. And actually, the gift of being able to create those stages to draw people to come because it's agreeable, a lovely word, 
it's convivial it is open to the idea that you may not be um, a university graduate or you maybe you are a university graduate but your interest is in something else and that you will meet people that we we don't select they tend to become self-selecting mm. but almost everybody that comes towards or is drawn to Eden is a slightly square peg looking for a square hole mm. and um which is ironic considering we have a round hole, but you know, um, um, and I love it. I love the way that we've drawn young people and old people together. Um, one of the things about Eden that is hilarious is when people are observant of traditional working relationships where you have a chief executive at the top and um, manual people at the bottom, if you like the blue collar brigade, they find it really discombobulating to discover that some of the people that are perhaps not in the hierarchy that you would expect or maybe have chosen to be employed as guides or whatever many of them have got fantastic academic credentials mm -hmm. our our team meetings can be incredibly fractious because you'll find that someone who's been waiting tables has got a very strong view on uh, 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 colonial politics and what's going on in china and th this and that and so it leads to a really interesting culture, which is that everybody's interested in just about everything. And you've got to be on your toes to justify why you're doing something. Mm. It's very interesting because the culture is such that if you're doing something, um, I'll give you an example. We are working in China. We have a many, many Chinese friends. We're really enjoying the work. You can imagine that in terms of the media coverage of what is happening, say, in the far west of China, there's a deal of pressure on us because we're um, an ethical organization to perhaps, A, avoid even talking about it, like I shouldn't be talking to you about it, right? But we surface these things because we say, look, we have many Chinese friends. China is the most powerful nation in terms of influencing the way the environment is going to go that there is. I cannot imagine anything more stupid than us walking away mm. from our friends in China mm. and then not having a discourse mm. about how we might improve the situations we face. Mm. Um, so one group of people would say, oh, you're just being used. And I then, I'm very harsh. And I say, maybe so, but you know what? It's a bit like um, having loved and lost. Does that mean you don't want to love again? Mm. Um, I think it's really important that that I think it's really important that people know you're loyal to them and the relationships you have are to do with the relationships you have built and they do not deserve to suffer owing to some political tokenism. And you ought to be able to say, I don't like X, I don't like Y, but we love you. You said a beautiful thing, if I may, just to remind you, you said, um, well, it surprised me. You said that the biggest barrier to resolving climate change is i think you said male vanity yeah <laughs> tell me more you're not talking about you and i of course you know we have our vanities no. but... to be an achiever you have to have self-belief and i think one of the interesting things is that vanity in its purest sense is antithetical to 
the positive job you want to do because who wants to work with someone who says, it's my game, it's my game, it's my mm. game. Mm. Mm. The strange thing is the more generous you are with the ideas <clears throat> and the collaboration, the more easily other people say it was your idea anyway. What they hated was the fact that you insisted on telling everybody yourself. Mm. Um, I think also vanity leads you not to listen enough. Mm. And listening, no one ever learnt anything by talking. Is that something that's been confirmed by your experience at Eden? I mean, you must have needed some extraordinary self-belief to get the whole thing, to get the whole thing moving. How is the Tim of today different from the Tim of, you know, the early days? Um, I think the confidence of doing something means you lay off the cliche of being the person with authority telling people what to do. Mm -hmm. And I think that I've become far less... Um, not that I was ever autocratic, but I was also always aware that in order to do certain things, you needed to be unreasonable in order to have people focus on their crossness with you for being unreasonable. And that eventually they will deliver it in that unreasonable timescale, um, which is really important because if you let things drift, they do drift badly. Anyone who's built a private house with builders, as I have, will know that if you're not on it, your prices rocket. Mm. And, but I think the other thing is, is the dream weaving, the storytelling of anything you do. I think you need to be able to convey, um, convey a story which is common to all of you who are participating in it. One of the things about Eden, that I know you know this, but, but um, is that an awful lot of the people who work for Eden are people who could earn double, treble what they do with us but they do it because they actually want to be in touch with the person they want to be. And that's pretty powerful, mm. pretty powerful. And it also means you realize you haven't got the right to be directorial about things. You have to, you have to seduce people for your views to prevail. Um, because again, saying that's how it's going to be, that's how it's going to be, that's how it's going to be is, is annoying to people. And um, also it, it, flies in the face of actually where genius lies. I'm, as I've got older, I've realized that true genius, when it comes together by genius, let's not overrate the word. What I mean is where something works beautifully yeah. is generally a construct of many different people. Hmm. The initial germ uh, may well have been yours or mine or whatever, but actually the thing that makes it absolutely sweet as a nut will have many different small observations which of themselves didn't make it that idea, but actually tweak it to the point where the whole, the whole thing is beautifully balanced and then goes forward in a way that everybody goes, yeah, that's great. I like that. But vanity, this is, this is a conversation about vanity. I know that to achieve things, you've got to be vain. And then to achieve things that are even bigger, you've got to start losing your vanity yeah. um, because you want to attract the very best people to come and work with you. Yeah, it's, it's, it reminds me, and you have a background in the arts as well, and it reminds me of this word ensemble, which I find myself using a lot, this idea that as, as vain or as, uh, you know, in, in the performing arts, you get people have a strong ego because they don't get very often a big salary, so they need something. So mm -hmm. you better get paid a lot, but if you're the best banjo player, then you hold on to that. And yet 
people with quite strong egos um, find their way together and are prepared to kind of write off some of their ego to be in ensembles with other great players or actors or makers because there's this sense that together we can do something bigger than we could do individually so and 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 i cert you know i think that 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 what you say reminds me of that but also ensembles need leaders but who don't sit in the middle waving their arms but somehow skirt the edges um and you know create corral people is that how you see yourself? I mean, it's it's unimaginable. You've got so much going on. How how do you now sort of pl- conjure um, and seduce and so on and so forth? Do you focus on storytelling or what is it you do? Do you pop up and just ask interesting questions and then disappear again? No, no. I I'm quite. I read a lot. Yeah, I read a hell of a lot, and I circulate what I like to colleagues. I berate them for their deep-seated ignorance and laziness in not feeding their own brains. Mm. I have no patience for people who say, oh, I haven't got time to read, I haven't got time to do this. Uh, because actually, if you really want to achieve things, if you really want to be good at what you do, invest in your brain. I just wanted to pop back to something you said because it, it twangs for me, it really twangs. you When you were talking before, about Eden as being a place where people gonna kind of got a second chance to be the person they thought they might be when they were 19. I'm hearing a similar thing there without being sort of too kind of cod about it, but there's something about that project um, that allows people to find meaning. Yeah, it does. Same at Heligan, actually, but... The meaning, the, the lovely thing is, it's like mining something inside yourself. It's not mm. like an externally provided thing. Mm. It's a bit as if the, 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 the key code to you was actually realizing a whole bunch of people needed you and valued you and want to include you in things and stuff. Um, and it kind of, it's kind of the, 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 the uh, what do you call that? It's kind of like... Um, exhorting the best you mm. or is it oh what's what's the other word um where 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 you uh, lay waste to the devils inside you yeah, lots beautiful. of words beginning with x <laughs> yes is the the big lunch is that part of does that also hark not hark back but is is are you tapping into that into this sense of um local connection, true community, um, you know, feeling feeling worth by contributing. Is there something that, is that behind the project at all? Yeah, yes, it is. Um, very much so. I, I, I think um, it all began when I um, went to uh, Holland for my stepmother's 60th birthday. Um, 65th birthday actually uh, and and her best mate worked for Dutch television and she just happened to tell me over the uh, the dinner that one of the things that had taken Holland by storm was some community television which was actually very funny where a guy had been mugged on what was one of the roughest streets of Amsterdam and had gone searching for the people that had mugged him with a camera 
because he wanted to shame them by having them on film. And the, 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 the great joke within the whole thing is that he never found the people who mugged him. But in going down this long street in Amsterdam, he met all these people and these characters all came together and they started to create what is called community by all now searching for the people who'd mugged him. So actually finding the people who'd mugged him became less important than the journey itself. And uh, I came back to the UK after that and I was talking to my friend Peter Stewart, who leads the big lunch, and I said, what, what do we do in Britain that would be effortless, that is kind of a tradition that just needs a little bit of buffing up? And we came to the conclusion that Sunday lunch was the only thing we could really think of, that doing Sunday lunch was the thing that uh, people... Uh, didn't have an inbuilt resistance. It was a British thing. Yeah. So we hit on the idea of having, um, uh, tried to organize a big lunch. Um, and it was very funny because we had the idea and we found some sponsors and then we went to see Orange, you know, the, to, yeah. the, the company. And it was one of the funny, funnier moments of my life earlier because the guys who were running marketing for Orange they said, look, we're really excited about this um, and we've got it all planned out. They made a presentation to us and they said, we will pay, I think it was two million quid. There's a lot of money uh, and we will sponsor it and it'll be called the Orange Big Lunch and people will um, come onto our website uh, and we'll get all their data. And we just sat there absolutely aghast <laughs> and we said, um, guys, look, we're really grateful for the vote of support, but who on earth wants to do the orange big lunch? Who? We don't even want to do the Eden big lunch. We want them to do their big lunch. I don't know a single person in the world that wants to do the Eden project big lunch or orange big lunch. What we wanted to do is to catalyze or facilitate, uh, provide an excuse for people who didn't have the excuse to knock on a neighbor's door to say, do you fancy participating in this event? And, they will knock as far as they feel comfortable. A lot of people only feel comfortable with perhaps two, three neighbors. You know, the fact that you see whole streets of people doing the big lunch is extraordinary. Most people actually just feel comfortable meeting just a few new people. That'll do. But the, the thing about the big lunch, though, that's really interesting is it's not the day that's important. It's all the socializing before mm. when people go into each other's houses and discover that everybody leads quite a rackety life and mm. their houses are not nearly as pristine as you thought. And people love the idea that there might be a trestle table in their garage or something that could be used or some old chairs. And I remember in the first year, Pete told me with rather misty eyes, um, there'd been a threat of rain and they were having a meeting the day before. Um, and um, this, this, this elderly lady said to, to Pete, uh, putting his hand, her hand on his arm, said, you know, even if we don't have lunch tomorrow, this whole experience would have been worth it. It's been simply marvellous is getting together with people and seeing people's houses and talking or whatever. <laughs> because what happens is you then have relationships and yeah. um, it sounds a bit glib, but you're, what you're doing is you're, 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 you, you don't then live in your house, you live in a neighbourhood. Yeah. And that actually matters. But then you discover the sort of humbling things that you'll find you know, people in their middle age who live, what, 10 miles from the sea, who've never visited the sea. Wow. And then people start picking up on all of that stuff. Mm. Because people are, I think we said earlier, I think people are good. I think people are basically good. They don't know how to be given permission to do good things sometimes. And also, they don't know how to do good things without then 
the relationship becoming closer than they feel comfortable yeah. having. You know, how can I be as close as I want to be as opposed to going over a line where someone then feels beholden or something? It's yes, all quite engulfed. Yeah. Next year, it's going to be the centerpiece for Her Majesty's Platinum Jubilee, which is great because Her Majesty came for the G7 to Eden and she had um, the Duchess of Cornwall, Camilla, and uh, the Duchess of Cambridge. Um, so I was going, I was, I was, I was thinking, Wessex, which, which, which kingdom? Yeah. Uh, okay. And, and the, you the, better the, get it right. Otherwise they'll take your knighthood away. And they were, uh, absolutely. And rightly so. And, and, and th- they went up and m- they met all these big lunch activists, uh, 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 one, one side, one side of the site while the others were hobnobbing with, um, um, the, the world leaders. And it was just so sweet to see yeah. them just, it's an innocent thing yeah. and it's a good thing. And it's the best of, a lot of it is about the best of British and makes us who we are and it's inclusive. And I think that's probably a really good thing at a time when a number of people in our communities have tried to emphasize the things that are different rather than the ties that actually bind us, which yeah. are the human things. You, you, you're, we're both lovers of words and we like to, to uh, anatomize words, but you said something just before we started about community, which I think is a word a little bit like sustainability, which is kind of, you say it so often, it's sort of lost its, it's lost or it's freighted with associations. But for you, it had come alive recently. Remind me, remind me, remind me why. The real, the, 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 the origin of it is from two words, com meaning together and munos meaning in gift. Uh, and I love that because too often, um, the word community is again lazily used as if it was a population of people who lived within a line drawn on a map uh, and communos actually means rather the opposite it's about the relationships of the people uh, between that so you've got to be in relationship you can't be passive you're not a community if it's passive it is very interesting i i read a book um i think you may have read it too uh called uh, identity and violence by amartya sen the nobel laureate mm-hmm. In it, he writes this brilliant thing about, he has a double-page spread in which he says, this is me, Amartya Sen. And he goes, I'm just making this up, but I think it starts, I'm a gardener. I'm an academic economist. I'm an Arsenal football supporter. Well, everybody's got to have weaknesses. Um, This whole list. But it was about number eight or something that Hindu, I think, came up. And he said, what terrorism is about, what othering is about, is is external people trying to define you by what they would like to be your major defining thing. Mm. He said, but being a Hindu isn't my major defining thing. On Saturdays and some other days, being an Arsenal football fan is even more important. And, you know, and it was a really beautifully written piece yeah. about... The, I don't know the what, what the, the what, is it the poly, polymathy um, that makes us up. So I wanted to ask her so just to go back to what you were saying about Amartya Sen. You know, I think there's something so interesting in that as well. Is uh, people are often talking about themselves as nouns. I'm a bricklayer. I'm a father. I'm which is of course true. I love to think about what people's verbs are. You know, my verb is to. So for me, though I though I sort of smart a bit or I, I, I'm in two minds about it. When I ask people 
uh, and it's happened a few times, you know, try and describe my work because they can see it better than I. The verb they often come up with is things like inspire or kindle or, uh, um, uh, you know, energize. And they're not, they're not verbs I would have chosen, but, but sometimes other people can see them clearly, clearer than you can. And once, once I think you know your verbs, you can attach them to very many different nouns. I'm often in business talking to business people about their verbs and and you see their shoulders drop a bit because they don't have to do, you know they don't have to defend being an accountant necessarily or worry if they're in the wrong job if you if you know your verb you can apply it to being a gardener or being uh, you know a professional lawyer whatever it is i'm wondering what are tim's verbs what are the verbs you think you that that either you chose or chose you are there any verbs are there kind of con- common features in the way you do things because you do so many things but my verb well can i have a verb which is to kiss frogs yes you can because it's got a noun in it but yes yes that's what that's that that probably covers almost everything for me i i i am completely turned on by being a frog kisser um (laughs) i i love putting things into good heart Mm. a heartner a good heartner Say um, more about that. Do you mean taking ideas and then in, sort of in, embedding them in a heart? No, I, I love I love seeing things which have in them an inherent beauty and purpose, mm. a grain, if you like, a noble grain that actually, for a moment, they're paralysed and unable to reconnect with that. But with my help and with the persuasion of people more talented uh, than I doing, we can actually bring them back to life. And not only back to life, but actually burnished, you know. Um, Beautiful. It's funny. I love that word burnished. Mm. There's, a, there's a poem, Tennyson, because someone wrote to me about this. It is about the sentiment of it. I'd love it if you could find it, actually. The sentiment of it is how sad it is to be here in the dark, um, unburnished through something use. Uh, and it's all about it's all about the burnishing of things to uh, put them back into good purpose and heart. And to me, actually, that's almost everything uh, that covers almost everything, whether it be working out how you manage to mess up a relationship and how do you how can you step backwards and um, make things content. You can't always rebuild, but you can, if you are thoughtful and gentle and kind, make things content again. Um, and I think contentment, much more than happiness, is a a marvelous thing. It's that far from the madding crowd. Do you remember that yeah. line where they said, "Was it Gabriel Oakes says, when I look up there, you will be, and when you look up there, I will be. That's all I want." And do you remember that? It's, yeah, it, that's so beautiful. Yeah. yeah. And I think we often, in our quest for novelty, uh, and maybe it's a tragedy of getting older, that you realise that some of the stimulus that moved you to do things that excited you actually was not in your long-term best interests because actually you should have invested more time in the contentment aspect rather than being frustrated that it was, wasn't always razzmatazz and exciting 
because um, contentment is a deeper running river. Yeah. Ah, oh, Tim Smith, we could go on and on, but um, should we pause there and let our and let our 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 listeners, what, what we love to do at the end of a conversation is to give them a little spark of something that we've talked about and to play with it as they're walking on. Um, anything occur to you when, you when you're wandering around? Is there anything that you do, whether it's in towns or on planes, trains and automobiles, when Tim is a wandering, is there anything you do to kind of uh, make, the, make the environment your plaything, have conversation with the environment, get ideas? Um, this sounds a bit weird. I, when I'm in cities, um, not all cities, but when I'm in cities where I've got a sort of familiarity, um, I, maybe it's the archaeologist in me. I just imagine beneath my feet and I start with the notion that maybe three, 400 meters beneath me is a raging river that's going uphill or lakes. And then above us, when you get to the ground level, you know, you've got peoples that lived there 60,000 years ago. And that this whole place is an incredible magnet in the true sense of magnet of emotion. I've always been fascinated by water and the way that water can act as a magnetic force in some way. I've often wondered when you go to places that you don't know the history of, but they feel melancholy. When you then read up about them, you discover that something um, untoward has usually happened there. And I'm very interested in the fact that the the shrillness of the electricity of something untoward happening to a creature with blood and you know beautifully engineered with its electrics, that that memory becomes like an embedded history in the other living things that remain thereafter. And I know at Heligan, for example, that we had to have an exorcism at Heligan because we had, I had so many letters from people that were just being accompanied by people who walked through walls and seed potatoes were being moved from one locked room to another and stuff. And I, I have no particular belief one way or the other, but I have a very strong sense that there is something that I do not know what it is there is some kind of magnetism that is yet to be found. It's not about hocus pocusdom. It is about dimensions, electrics, and moisture. Because without water, this planet doesn't exist. Without water, no, no living thing exists. And we take water as a simple thing at our peril. Mm. I, As a Piscean, I, I resonate with that. And I love it. I'm going to... Um, create a little exercise where I've never done this, you know, that's something that never occurred to me. And I've been walking, you know, we've been doing street wisdom for 10 years, but this notion of letting your imagination penetrate the ground beneath you and the history that's beneath you, the layers on which you're walking is a beautiful, humbling, but mind ex and heart expanding exercise. So wonderful. So wonderful. Tim, I'm really, it's really a pleasure to spend time with you. But both this and the previous time, it's just like the highlights of the week, month. It's been fantastic. Thank you so much. Well, it's entirely mutual. It's been uh, uh, very agreeable and highly convivial.
Oh, there is so much about what Tim says that leaves me a buzzing with excitement and wanting to try things. But one of the things that leapt out at me, do you remember when he's talked about walking around and being aware of history beneath um, his feet? In the Time on the Tradition of Wonderful, what I wanted to do is take that little fragment and turn it into uh, an exercise, a game, a jeu, a practice, that, so we can experience what that's like. So what I'm going to suggest is, for the next 10 minutes, um, and I'm going to do this with you, but that we are aware of the world beneath our feet. And what I suggest that, that we do is, we start off, and in sort of with every step, allow your consciousness already to kind of penetrate the earth beneath your feet. You could start by noticing um, how your, the soles of your feet connect with your socks if you're wearing them, or the soles of your shoes if you're not wearing them, if you're not wearing socks. And how do your sh the soles of your shoes connect with the earth beneath you? Is it pavement? Is it, is it a stone? Is it, is it earth? Is it grass? And as you're walking, just gently allow your mental radar, if you like, to penetrate what you think may be beneath your feet. Is it rock? Is it mud? Allow pictures to come to mind, senses of, I maybe there's subterranean rivers under there, old buildings that have been built and receded from view, old civilizations. Allow your fantasy to run wild, but keep walking. And as you're walking, be aware of those that went before and see what that's like. I'm going to do the same. And uh, let's get back together in about 10 minutes and uh, exchange ideas. So, the world beneath my feet, the earth, beneath my feet. Underneath these stones there's earth. If we go down tree roots and shop signs. Okay, welcome back. Welcome back to the surface of the earth. I don't know what that was like for you, but I loved that. I haven't done that before, not in that way anyway. And my impressions were, well, the first thing that happened, perhaps expectedly, was uh, I felt I was sort of growing roots a little bit into the ground. Um, that practice Qigong, standing like a tree, that kind of Eastern practice of rooting to the earth came to me and that was that was nice felt much sort of stronger and solid on the earth and then I then I my mind took me in a different place I, I imagined previous generations and the previous the detritus of previous civilizations you know broken bridges and and domestic um, domestic items and so on which made me feel I think well privileged to be part of it and the final, you know, the whole stream of history thing, which calmed me down. And then calm was the last thing I got as well, was I was walking and I felt as though, now I'm not a botanist or anything, but my understanding is um, like on a tree trunk, the outer bark is sort of dead. Uh, and and inside it's it's also dead, but then there's this thin 
this thin layer of living tree and it felt a bit like that which is it felt as though the crust of the earth that I'm standing on is inert but underneath in a weird way the world is alive the globe is alive I was remembering what Tim said about you know the the, the core of the earth being you know like a nuclear explosion that's going on and so it suddenly felt yeah, that the, the earth is alive and I felt more alive as a, as a result of that. I want to try that more because I think there's, there's lots to be gained from, from, from considering the world beneath our feet, this earth of ours. Um, yet another thing I need to thank Sir Tim Smith for. Um, you know what they say? Never do a podcast with your heroes. They don't actually say that, but if they did say that... Um, they'd be wrong because I just have and I'm really glad I did I'm really glad he spent the time I can't wait till the next uh, moment we sit down and conspire and until then let's all do what uh, let's all be Neanderthal men and women <laughs> see you for the next episode of, of, of Wonderful and let's get some more inspiration on the go bye have a wonderful time you can find out more about these mindful walking techniques at streetwisdom.org, a global non-profit founded by David Pearl. Street Wisdom is an everyday creative practice you use as you walk to help you unblock your mind to find clarity and inspiration. Why not follow us at streetwisdom underscore for free guided in-person and online workshops you got it. Walking workshops. You can also download our audio guides on Spotify. Just search for Street Wisdom. Happy wandering!